Great to see you guys. We're in Matthew chapter 18. We've taken this season outside to kind of walk through Matthew. We, look, we take a look at it on Sunday. On Wednesday, we really try to plow into it. Uh, Matthew 18, it's just, if you've read it, it's a crazy chapter. It begins by Jesus saying, kids are the greatest. Most of them already know that, right? Then a mafia-style execution, then self-mutilation, hell, lost sheep, lost relationships, shunning people in church, debt and debtors, and then forgiving 490 times. That's all in one chapter. I mean, it's just brilliant. It is pregnant with meaning. Uh, If you've been with us for about four weeks, there's a flow to the book of Matthew. Jesus is doing something. He's moving. He's trying to accomplish something. So we looked at chapter 16, and Jesus there establishes the church. It's the birth of the church. It's Jesus saying, here's what I've come to do. The next chapter The next really big event is Jesus is transfigured. He comes down from the mountain and he meets a child who has a demon. So you have a clash of kingdoms. The moment you talk about the church, this new kingdom that Jesus has come to establish, all of a sudden there's going to be a clash and the disciples, they lose in the battle. So you can always know this as a church, there will be attacks from the outside. It's just, you got to know that. But now in chapter 18, he's dealing with something else. It's the battle inside the church. Relationships, reconciliation, forgiveness, character growth. So there's a flow, right? Now here's the battle that's inside. And this is big. Do you know the number one biggest problem in church? Someone said Christians. (laughs) It's true. It's other believers, right? So missionaries, people that have said, I've heard the call of God in my life. I'm going to give up home and and comfort and safety. I'm going to study another culture, probably learn another language. And then I'm going to transplant myself and my family to some foreign place for an extended period of time. You know the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field? No one-plied toilet paper? (laughs) Eating bugs? Low on kaopectate? Nope, other missionaries. It's interpersonal conflict is the reason why these people that have said, I'm dedicating my life to something, give up on it. So chapter 18, when we look at the flow, okay, there's a battle from the outside, but oh, Jesus now says there's going to be a battle on the inside, and it's a big one, the biggest problem in church. Chapter 19 gives us the second biggest problem in church, which is sex, okay? Um, You can read it, just not now, right? That's what it begins with. Jesus talks about relationships and adultery and sex, and all those things come up. So Jesus hits the really big stuff. And chapter 18 to me is huge. If you don't get chapter 18 right, this thing that Jesus says I've come to establish never functions correctly. Okay, so I'm going to read some of these verses to give you the context, but we're going to really center in on one little 
idea, all right? So let's go. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he took him in the midst of him, them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It's mafia Jesus right there. Verse seven, woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Interesting phrase. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for establishing this organism called the church, called your body. Thank you for the incredible potential that you've placed into this thing called the church. I pray that this morning we might gain better understanding both of its potential and also of its problems. And may we be a group of people that battle the problems so we can fulfill our potential. So give us wisdom, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse seven, Jesus gives us a warning. Really big warning. Look out. And then Jesus in verses eight and nine says, here's how you apply this warning, like radical removal. This warning is so stern that I'm expecting you guys to act radically. And before we get into the rest of this chapter on Wednesday, what Jesus is saying is this. This thing called the church and it maturing and growing and becoming what it's supposed to become, it begins first by you dealing with you. That's what he's saying here. Before you talk about forgiving other people or reconciling all this other stuff, going after the one that's lost, you need to deal first with yourself. Huge lesson. That's what mature believers do. So we'll get to Matthew 26 pretty quickly. And in Matthew 26, the disciples do something that you see a glimmer of hope. We've studied the book of Matthew. The disciples make a lot of mistakes, kind of like us. But in chapter 26, they get something right. They get this point right. Because Jesus gathers his 12 together, his 12 closest friends, 
has been walking with them for three and a half years. He gathers them together. He has this meal. In the middle of this meal, he looks at his 12 and he says this, one of you will betray me. And the Bible says this, it's verse 22, Matthew 26. Each of the disciples said to Jesus, is it I? Am I the one that's gonna do that? They didn't do this. Gotta be Judas. Man, I've been looking at him. Dude is not a believer. Pretty sure he's stealing, all right? Gotta be Peter. Guy always puts his foot in his mouth. He's gonna do it. He won't even mean to do it. He just will end up doing it, right? Satan was in him a while ago. It's gotta be him. They don't do that, do they? Is it I? Am I the problem here? That goes against human nature. Do you know that? Here's human nature. I'll I'll illustrate it with my children. Because children, really, they tell us what human nature is. That's how, okay, you're born like that. So this happened, oh, 11 years ago. Because my oldest daughter, Carissa, at that time, she was three years old. Just learning to write her name, just all those cool things at three years old. My other daughter only had two at the time. She was one year. So um, I had this Volkswagen van a West Folly, a 1980 van again. We'd go camping in it and I had painted it white. I came out one morning to get into my Volkswagen van and I noticed that on the door, somebody had written their name. So I could see the C and the A and then the R and then there was kind of an I but the ballpoint pen broke and so it was just kind of engraved into the paint. And so I went in and got my three-year-old daughter, Carissa, and I brought her out and I said, Carissa, Somebody wrote on daddy's door. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Who wrote on daddy's door? Daddy, I did not write on your door. You didn't write C, A, R, and almost an I. You did not write that. No, daddy. Carissa, who wrote on daddy's door? Isabella did it. (laughs) All right. That's human nature. There's this book, I should have read it, I didn't. I love the title, it said this. Mistakes were made, but not by me. (laughs) It's a business book, because that's the model. That's the model we live out. Mistakes were made, oh, but not by me. Gotta be Judas, gotta be Peter. They get it. Is it I? Could I have done this? Am I the one that could have made this mistake? Jesus says, this thing I'm launching, the stakes are so high. When it comes to this kind of stuff, you have to deal radically. You have to amputate. What is amputation? It's the nuclear option, isn't it? We've done every other thing to try to save this limb, this part of your body. Now, if we don't cut it off, it will destroy you. That's it, right? If you went to the doctor for tennis elbow, have you ever had tennis elbow? I have it right now. It needs a better name because it hurts. I'm going to call it logger's elbow because it's that painful. If you go to the doctor and you've got logger's elbow and you're like, man, it hurts really bad. Well, doc, what can you do? If he said, you know what? We need to take it off at the elbow. You'd be like, is there some other option? Well, we could take it off at the shoulder. I don't know. You're going to, dude, you're nuts, right? That's the nuclear option. Jesus is saying, this is so important. You have to go nuclear on this, okay? So is he literally saying to believers, cut off hands, cut off feet, and gouge out your eyes? Is he saying that? If your hand causes you to sin, anyone ever stole anything ever in their life? Cut off your hand. 
If your foot ever causes you to sin, you ever kicked your little brother because he was bugging you? Cut off your foot. Has your eye ever looked at sin? Ever? Gouge it out. Right? Is he wanting us to walk around with hook arms and peg legs and patches? Does Jesus want a bunch of pirates? Is that what he's after? I don't think so. He is saying this is radical and it's important. But I think if you back up and look at the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, Proverbs uses the eye to say your eye is the perspective you have on life. It's how you see people. Do you see them sinfully? Do you demonize them? Oh, they're always this or they're never that. When I use terms like always and never, you know what I'm doing? I'm demonizing that person. They're not just a liar. They don't just lie, rather. They are a liar. That's what I've made them. I've made them something wrong. I've taken out the Imago Dei. So the eye is used of kind of your perspective. Your hand is like how you act now that you have that perspective. Your foot is the path that you take in life. Like, look out. If you're looking at people this way and acting this way, you're gonna solidify a lifestyle that's wrong. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Kind of that kind of, look out. And so Jesus is saying, have a, radical approach to your own character growth. That's what I think he's saying. Take things so seriously in this great thing I'm birthing called the church that you take a radical approach to your own character flaws. Well, why should I? Well, Jesus says, end of verse nine, it's better to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Perhaps you have a note in your Bible, mine does. The word hell there is actually the Greek word Gehenna. What's Gehenna? Gehenna is the transliteration of the Hebrew Hinnom, Valley of Hinnom. So it was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And that's often translated in your New Testament, hell, the Valley of Hinnom. I was in Israel just a little while ago. And my wife and I, we walked through the Valley of Hinnom. So literally, I have been through hell with my wife. It's kind of cool to say that. I've been through hell with my wife. Truly, I have. That's, that's this place. It's a location. But when you said Gehenna, it brought up in these people's minds 2,000 years ago all these images. Because in that valley, about 500 years before that, there's a king named Manasseh. And this king named Manasseh in the valley of Hinnom put this little god down there called Moloch. And the way that you worship Moloch was this. If you wanted to get ahead in life, you would take your firstborn child and Moloch, the fire inside of Moloch would be kindled and you would lay your baby on the arms of Moloch. So Manasseh began that in the valley of Hinnom. Jeremiah responds to that. The prophet says, this is so bad. What's gonna happen is the people of Jerusalem are going to be slain and their bodies are going to be tossed down into the valley of Hinnom. There's going to be judgment. So Hinnom, Gehenna would bring up into these people's minds like when we mentioned Auschwitz. It was like that, like a really dark, bad chapter in our history. And so the context of Gehenna is this, it's God judging evil by bringing evil, Babylon, to get the hell out of his city. Like literally that's what he did. I'm getting the hell out of my city, Jerusalem, and I'm tossing it into this place and I'm gonna defile it. So all that is kind of wrapped up in this word. So what Jesus is saying is this, if you don't deal radically 
with your character flaws, look out. You're kindling Gehenna. You're making your life hell. That's what's going to happen to you. And eventually what will happen, if you do not deal with those things, eventually evil will come and deal with it. That's really what's being said. And by the way, that whole process gets repeated at the end of this age. Do you know that? It's Revelation 20, where God finally says, I'm going to get the hell out of my planet. And he grabs all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is unjust, and he grabs it up and he throws it into this lake called the lake of fire. It's brilliant and it's beautiful. That's how this thing ends. It's a happy day when that happens. So God always will judge evil. He'll take care of it. And Jesus is saying right now, he's calling us, listen, deal with it. If the church is going to be the church, if we are gonna camp at hell's gate, remember that Matthew chapter six, and we're gonna take on hell and we're gonna push hell out. We're gonna reclaim those that belong to my kingdom. If we're going to do that, it begins by you making sure that you get the hell out of you. That's what he's saying here. It's brilliant. If we don't do that, church becomes super toxic. Do you know how? Read James 3. It's a fascinating text. It's all about your words. In James 3, it says this, that your mouth is set on fire by hell. That the words that I am speaking and that the way that I talk to people, I'm actually kindling hell's fire. It's a fascinating thought. Fascinating. But you know what? I think we all know it, don't we? Who in here has been hurt by a believer's words? Who feels like you've been burned up by someone talking about you incorrectly, saying things that you had spoken in private, and now they're saying it in public? Every single one of us, there's a hell being kindled by the very words believers Say So what Jesus is saying in chapter 18, I'm, I'm birthing this thing called the church and it has this potential to do so much good, but look out, look out. There's a danger and the danger is from within. And instead of the church becoming a hospital for broken people, the church can become a breeding ground for toxic disease. And it's by the words that we speak so often. So Jesus says, deal with it radically deal with it. And then leave the 99 and go for the one. And then verses 15 through 18, the premium text for reconciling relationships inside of the church, right? And then forgive people seven times 70. Then the church works brilliantly when you have said, I'm going to take care of these things in myself. Is it I? Is it I? It's when we have dealt with the hell in us that we're able then to be used by Jesus to really camp at the gates of hell. Here's the issue today. Our culture does not do character flaw well. Do you know that? We do self-esteem. Fundamentally, our culture now doesn't look at people and say, hey, you have a weakness here. We have a culture that now really stands up and says, oh, you're so good at that. You're so good at that. We praise people for their skill, but we never protest their shortcomings because that's our culture today. It hasn't always been that way. Let me give you an example of someone that I found just, I found her fascinating. I was talking with my wife about her uh, this week. I've been reading about her. her. name is Frances Perkins. Maybe you recognize that name, maybe you don't. Frances Perkins 
lived in the early 1900s. She is the reason why we don't have 11-year-olds working in a sweatshop out in the North Valley Industrial Park. She's the reason. Brilliant lady. Like she dominated in a man's world. She was FDR's labor secretary when women just received the right to vote. I mean, she's unbelievable. She is an unbelievable woman. So I start reading about her and how she just transformed our country and affected all these things for so much good. And it turns out, here's what happened to her. When she was this young, very wealthy lady, comes from lots of money. She was at a friend's house and there was a fire. It was called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. If you know our history, that was a turning point, that fire. Happened in 1911. And this fire, it was in this 10-story building, happened on the fifth floor and just started burning all the workers above. So bad it was it that people just started jumping out of the windows to the concrete cement below. The firemen rushed out with their nets, but the nets would break when the bodies would hit them, so they were useless. They brought in a fire truck. They tried to, tried to put out the fire, but the water pressure was so low, it wouldn't reach up to the upper stories. So instead, this inferno just went and took out people. There's all these problems with it. Well, down below on the street was standing a young Frances Perkins. And she said, that hell has to stop. No more can we do this. And she dedicated her life to changing it. And she did. And so my question was, what put in this young lady the metal to say, not that anymore? Well, I started reading about her. Turns out she went to this college. Very different kind of college than us today. She went to this college and this college said this, and back in the 1900s, this is what they did. They didn't concentrate on what you were good at. They looked for moral failing that would affect you for the rest of their, your life. So Frances Perkin comes in, this 18-year-old rich little girl, and her professors start to watch her. And they said, number one, Frances Perkins, you are lazy. How could you say, could a professor get away with saying that today? You're on Pokemon Go too much. You gotta stop, right? They can't say that. You are lazy. They forced her for hours and hours to memorize Latin verb tenses until she would cry. They said, Francis, you are really good at history and literature, but you stink at chemistry. Guess what they made her major? Chemistry, right? Because they said this. They said, it is these things that are gonna hold you back. Not what you're good at. We're not gonna praise you for what you're good at. We are gonna start pointing out what you're not good at and we're gonna help you become the kind of person you're supposed to become. And it says her mom, when she came and visited her, when she turned 22 and graduated, she said, I don't know who this girl is. She has become velvet steel. She's been transformed. That's what changed her. It wasn't, oh, you're so good at this, go do that. It was, hey, you've got some issues right here. Let's take care of those so that you can go change the world. The, the, the college she went to was a Christian college that was bent on sending out missionaries. And the founder said this, do what nobody ever wants to do and go where no one ever wants to go. That was her motto. What was the medal of Francis Perkins? It was right here. It was doing this right here. And she changed our world. And she found that life is lived going for the struggle, not going for what is simple and easy. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, Matt, how do we do that? We're in a culture that runs from that kind of stuff. How do we do that? I'll give, you, give away the rest of this chapter. We'll talk about it on Wednesday. It's one thing. 
The rest of this chapter is dealing with one thing. You know what it is? Community. Leave the 99. What's the 99? That's community. And what? Go after the one. If a brother sins against you, go to that brother, talk with him. If you work it out, great. If it doesn't, grab another person, go to that brother, talk with him. If it doesn't, bring the church into it. Just get this thing reconciled. Forgiveness. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No. Seven times 70. The entire rest of this chapter is saying, this happens, this works out in community. It's been the message of the Bible, right? Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. You need someone else. Why? Because my goodness, the world would look ugly if it was just men. We need the other side, right? So you need that. Proverbs 27, six says this, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Oh, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Ephesians 4.11 says, speak the truth in. Most people are good at one or, one or the other, right? Some people are really good at speaking, but you're just one that they're talking about. Other people, man, they've got no love when they talk to you. The key is speaking the truth in love. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2.4. He says, the, the hard things I spoke to you guys is the proof of my love for you. These other guys aren't, te- the false apostles, they're just telling you, man, it's all good, bro. Don't worry about it. Hey, you got a character flaw, no big deal. He says, the proof that I spoke hard things to you, that shows that I love you. And he said very hard things. Read 1 Corinthians. You guys are a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of whiners. You're complainers, Right? Grown men do not like to be called babies. But Paul was saying that because he said, I want so much more for you. It's the proof that I actually love you. I can go on and on. James 5, 19 through 20. Man, pursue relationship, pursue that person, okay? That's what we're supposed to do. Without community, listen to me, without community, you will never know yourself. Do you realize that? Without community, you will never know who you really are. Okay, before I got married, And before I had kids, I was the kindest, most loving, gentlest person I knew. I'm not anymore. What happened? I'm in community. (laughs) It showed me I'm not that good of a guy. We need to be rubbed so we get this thin veneer of our own goodness wiped away and get down to the chipboard. Like, wow, that's what I really am. I'm chipboard. I thought I was something better than that. We need those things. Okay, that's where the cradle of greatness comes from. Is it I? Do I have the issue here? That's the first question to always ask, okay? This is what enables us as a church to stand against darkness when we're united and we are truly able to love one another in this brilliant way. All men will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. That's where we get great, incredible power. Now, before a couple of you just go off, you're like, I cannot wait to go get that guy. I'm gonna speak the truth to him. I'm gonna tell him all of his character flaws. Jesus, I've found my ministry. Before you do that, let me give you one thing that you have to know. Relationships, here's what they're like. They're like a bank account. You gotta make some deposits before you can make some withdrawals. The bigger withdrawal you wanna make from somebody, you have better have made a much bigger deposit into them. You never go in debt in a relationship because if you do, it destroys the relationship. 
Like I have found this. I have found I have real difficulty listening to somebody that I do not trust. I just have difficulty. I don't know your angle. I don't know what you're trying to say. I don't know if this is a game. So relationships are like bank accounts. Before I'm gonna make a withdrawal with somebody, I had better have deposited and walked with them. I learned that early at Edgewater. I'll give you my best illustration I have. So Edgewater is maybe a year old or so. And I had this lady get a hold of me and she was very upset at me. And I didn't really know her, but it was about a story that I had told the previous Sunday. And here's the story. Maybe I'll make somebody upset again today. My daughter, Gabrielle, my third, 18 months old or so, um, I was outside and I had her next to me and I was playing catch or fetch rather with my dog, Chloe, with a golf ball. I'm just throwing it out. And Chloe would run down there, get the golf ball, bring it back, put it at my feet. And I would throw it and she'd go get it and bring it back. And I'd done this like maybe six, eight times. When Chloe brought the ball back and set it right at my 18-month-old daughter Gabrielle's feet. And so she reaches down and grab, grabs it. And I think she's going to throw the ball like 400 yards like her dad. Waiting for that. She doesn't. She picks it up dog slobber and all, pops it in her mouth. Yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. So I think that my application was good because I said this, whatever you're looking at, whoever you are idolizing is what you're going to do. If you're idolizing the dogs, you're going to act like a dog. Okay. So Gabrielle wasn't watching her dad and doing what her, she was watching the dog. She did what the dog did. Dog puts it in her mouth. I'm going to put it in my mouth. All right, so that was my application. I think it was a good application. So anyway, she comes in and she's just like, she's tore up over it. She's a little bit older and just like, that was the grossest story I've ever heard in church. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So I listened and I said, you know, I've, I've heard you and I appreciate you coming to me. Um, but I said, you probably better find another church to go to. Because my plan with Edgewater is I'm going to be really transparent and I'm going to be really raw and I'm going to really try to talk about things that are important and I'm not going to play games. I don't want that kind of a church. And I think maybe that's what you're looking for and I can make some recommendations for you. And so we parted ways, okay? But she had no capital in my life. I try to be as generous and as kind as possible. But honestly, I don't know what your agenda is. All right, mirror that with my wife. When my wife says something about a message, you can ask her. She runs from me. She'll say it and run. Why? Because she has so much capital. I know this about my wife. She is 100% for me. So when she says something, it's like, oh no, number one, I can't really say, hey, you need to go to another church now. That'd be weird. (laughs) But number two, I just know she's on my team and I know she wants the best for me. She has so much capital. I just will hammer and be like, why do you think that? Why? You know, because it's really important. So relationships, yeah, we got to really work on them, but make sure, make sure that you are a person that has the capital to actually talk to another person. Well, Matt, fundamentally, I'm pretty happy with the way I am, and I don't really want somebody telling me what my flaws are. I'm an American. I'm kind of happy with this way. Why should I do that? Why should I listen to people? Why should I be in community like that? Here's why. There's this text in John 15 where Jesus tells his disciples this, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And the vines that abide in me, they produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. 
But the vines that do not abide in me, they're cut off, gathered up, and they are burned. Interesting. Why do we do this? Because it makes you fruitful people. Because when I realize, man, I'm doing that to people or my words did that to somebody or I have this character deficiency, when when I do that and I receive that, then guess what happens? I I, I become fruitful. See, people get all esoteric about what it means to abide in Jesus. I don't think it's complicated. This right here, you know what this is? This is the body of Christ. It's being right here. It's hanging out with the body of Christ being willing to listen, being willing to say, oh, really? Okay, this right here, the body of Christ, when it does what it's supposed to be, it is so brilliantly powerful. Hell shakes. But when it isn't, when it's toxic and hurtful and we don't walk out chapter 18 well, hell smiles. Ha, got them exactly where we want. That's why we do this stuff. Now, there's a ton more in here, and I know that. Um, But let me say one final thing. Jesus talks about, hey, cutting off your hand and cutting off your foot, gouging out your eye. Radical, right, radical? But the Bible is gonna get even more radical than that. It's gonna say, you don't need to just amputate your hand or your foot or your eye. It's gonna say, you need to amputate your heart. That's the source of all these problems. It's your heart, right? It's like cancer. If, if you've walked with somebody that goes through cancer, they try to find the, the very source of where at first the cancer started before it metastasized. Why? Because it's the thing spitting out all these tumors. So you can cure all the outside tumors, but if you haven't taken care of that metastasizing tumor, oh, you haven't done anything. The heart is where all this junk comes from. And so Jesus is gonna say, the Bible's gonna say what you actually need is a brand new heart. You need that old heart of stone to be taken out and you need a new heart given to you. That's what we all need. We need heart surgery. And you know what? Sometimes I need heart surgery even though I'm saved. Like my heart, the Bible, David prays, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked thing in me. See if there's something that's leading me astray. See if there's some problem with me and then lead me on the way everlasting. So, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna take communion and hopefully we're gonna allow communion to do heart work. And I think we have communion in here. Do you guys have communion up there? Everyone has communion. If you don't have communion, raise your hand and we will make sure and get you communion. So when I'm counseling people or I'm talking to people, I don't know how we're gonna fit in here. We'll cuddle. That's a great idea. I'm cold too. Close with because everyone already has it. You can hear me. <laughs> Hard to whisper with this thing on. <laughs> You're mic'd up. <laughs> That's funny. He was going to play when it was being handed out because I wasn't sure if everybody up there had it. So you think on the fly. In life, there's these voices that speak into us. You can listen to your own voice, kind of the, the voice of self. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes the voice of self is really deluded, just deluded. 
I, I think there's a satanic voice that whispers to us. And Satan will come like a angel of light, whispering really good things. Has God really said? Is that really true? You can also listen to the voice of the world. There's a, there's a worldly voice that, that wants to, Romans chapter 12 says, squeeze us into its mold. Be like this. You know, just look out for number one. There's all these voices. Or you can listen to the voice of Jesus. And, and for me, communion, I call it embodied remembrance. I, I say it's communion is where the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. That there is something that happens. I can't even explain it. It's 1 Corinthians 11 where it just says, there's a power to this thing. There can be a great power to communion. Now, I don't believe it literally turns into Jesus's body and, you know, transubstantiation, but I think there's a power to it, a real power to it. And the power of communion is this. It's remembering that Christ's death has forgiven us. Christ's death has crushed the serpent's head, that we're no longer under the reign and dominion of the kingdom of darkness, that we can say to the enemy, be gone, and he's gone. We don't have to listen to those voices. That kingdom has been defeated. Christ's death established was the seed of this new kingdom that's gonna grow in us and eventually become where we live for eternity. And we have this mission now to tell other people that. Isn't that good news? Like, I don't, have, I don't have a struggle telling people the good news. Like, listen. Man, the powers of darkness have been crushed in your life. You've been set free. Man, listen. Jesus, God, in the flesh, loved you so much that he died for you. I don't have any problem telling people that. I think that's really good news. And then the Bible says this, with the new covenant, your old heart gets removed and you're given a new heart that can sense and feel God. The old covenant was, I'm going to write the things out for you on tablets of stone and you can read them. The new covenant is, I'm going to speak directly to you. My voice, you can listen to it. That's what his death did. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? See, Romans 6 makes this real clear. And I think often in communion, we miss this. We, we concentrate on his death. But even 1 Corinthians 11 says this, we remember his death and we also remember that he is returning for us. Celebration, victory. See, it's both of those things. It's, Jesus, I see these character flaws in me and I'm overwhelmed that you would love somebody as flawed as I am. But on the other hand, Jesus, you've given me victory. That I've been, Romans chapter six, made alive in Christ Jesus. Every time I baptize somebody, I tell them this, you died today. And I hold them under the water a long time. <laughs> Literally. But I said, it doesn't end there. You are now resurrected into newness of life. And you can write on your calendar today, you know, whatever, Joe Blow, I died but I was resurrected to newness of life. So the old stuff that I used to do, now when I'm tempted to do it, you know what I say to Satan? No, Joe Blow died. July 15th, 16th, whatever it is today, 17th. 
and was resurrected into newness of life in Jesus Christ, I live a different life now. I've been, I've been made different. So I don't have to cut off my hand or cut off my foot or gouge out my eye because the very source of me has been changed and I'm being transformed daily, 2 Corinthians 3.18, into his same image. And I sit underneath his knife because he is so good to me. And he removes the junk and replaces it with better stuff. That's communion. And by faith, you can have that today. You can have that power today. And so, Father, thank you for the unspeakable gift, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are able to tame my tongue full of hell. Thank you that you are able to transform my eye and my hand and my foot. Thank you that for every person in here that has believed in Jesus Christ, the old heart has been removed and a new heart has been given and we've been sprinkled with clean water and we've made, been made perfect in your sight. And we've been given the promise of your Holy Spirit and the commission of Jesus Christ to be gospel ambassadors in our community, to camp at the hell's gate, knowing that we will win. And so may we partake this morning of power. May we partake of power, I pray. Let's eat together. and the cup of the new covenant. The promised seed. The victorious king. The suffering servant. The wounded victor. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid a debt I could never pay that you've received me into your kingdom, that you've cleansed me from my sins and you are cleansing me from my iniquity. May we celebrate you as our king. May we celebrate your kingdom. May we celebrate the return of the king because you're coming back and all that is hell is gonna be ripped out and thrown away and our destiny will be to be in your presence forever where there is no tears and there are no mourning. There is no sickness. There's no night. There's no goodbyes. There's no fear. Lord, that's what we're destined for. May we celebrate our destiny and may we leave here living that destiny. Let's drink together.